This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. The year is 1975, and it is time to make the meatloaf. The movie, Jean Dielman. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. Amy, today we are talking about a film that is number one on the 2022 Sight and Sound list, Jean Dielman, a film that I never heard of before. Uh, a movie that when you think, oh, it's the number one film, I at least have some familiarity with it. I, I feel uh, flabbergasted by the fact that this is the number one film. Um, but this is a this is truly one of the more unique films that we've ever done. Uh, it is described as art house acid. Can I say, I have been so looking forward to talking about this movie with you, and I'm just bursting with, with the excitement to talk about peeling potatoes. I, I really think that if you've not watched this film, or you watch 25 minutes of it and you are expecting us to come in here and do like a Love Actually rip on it, you will be disappointed. But I will tell you, get past that first 25. See if you have the endurance to do what this movie requires. I think you either hate us or you will be so happy that you did. I, I, I'm feeling you're going to be happy that you did. I think you will because I think this movie begins to operate on an emotional tenor that I think of as the oh, no, I'm watching a movie and there's a scene where people are driving in a car tenor. You know that feeling when you're the watching Tom a movie Hardy. and there's people driving in a car and you're like, we have to get out of this car because something bad is going to happen. Something bad is going to happen if we stay in this car. Don't keep looking out the window. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Jean Dielman operates on that sense of dread. And there is a payoff, a definite payoff. You know what? But Amy, a controversial payoff. A controversial payoff to some. Uh, but Amy, I think it's now time for me to turn off the lights of our introduction and turn on the lights of our main episode as we spool it. The year is 1975, and 25-year-old Belgian director Chantal Ackerman is sitting in the back of a theater at the Cannes Film Festival to watch the premiere of her second movie. 
She's not alone. She's sitting with her star, Delphine Seyrig, a very strikingly outspoken actress, the celebrity grand dame of the art house world for over a decade now. And for Chantal, Delphine has agreed to play her complete opposite, a dowdyish, unglamorous widow named Jeanne Dielman. For the next 201 minutes, the people in this theater will watch Jean peel potatoes, fold napkins, make meatloaf, wash dishes, scrub the bathtub, turn the lights on, turn the lights off, run small errands for yarn, button, stamps, more potatoes to take care of herself and her student son, Sylvain. The camera does not move, and every so often a man will ring the doorbell and Jean will disappear into her bedroom to have sex with him for money. She seems strict and calm and orderly, but as one day turns into the next day into the next day, Jean also seems to be disturbed, and she is too private to tell anybody why. In the second to last scene in the film, she grabs a pair of scissors on impulse and stabs her John in the neck. Okay, well, let's be clear here that some people in the theater will watch Jean do these things. You said 201 minutes. That is three hours and 21 minutes, okay? Because... It had its effect on the audience. I mean, people left. uh, They were mad. You know, over the course of the next three hours, one woman, the writer, Marguerite Duras, who screamed, this woman is crazy. And it's unclear if that woman means Jean, the character, or Chantal herself, the director. But after the screening, Chantal is invited to show the film at 50 international film festivals. She is anointed a major director abroad, that is, because Jean Dielman won't play in America for eight more years. And when it finally books two weeks at Film Forum in New York, boy, critics start to fight about whether it is a masterpiece or a bunch of pretentious nonsense. But that question has been resolved for now, because in December of 2022, Jean Dielman, 23 Quai de Commerce, 1080 Brussels, displaced Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo as the number one film on the Sight and Sound Critics Poll of the greatest films ever made. Does it deserve to be number one? I personally find that question less interesting than why is it number one? What are people seeing in Jean today that those walkouts in Cannes did not see in 1975? Take a listen to her washing dishes to really get a sense of how this film sounded and felt. Now, Amy, I guess the question is, though, you know, in a movie without music, what was on the radio and was Jean Dielman listened to it? Uh, It is not classical music. So I'm going to say that Jean would not listen to it. But the song that was on the radio is Tony Orlando, He Don't Love You. I want to play a clip of this. Then I want to talk a little bit about Tony Orlando. Take a listen. talk about Tony Orlando because that song sounds cheerful and lovely but when you hear that song I want you to also listen for the sound 
of an impending breakdown, something like Jean Dielman is going through in this film. Because at this point in Tony Orlando's career, he was having one. He was unable to sleep at night. He was waking up covered in sweat, grinding his teeth. He couldn't get out of bed. Literally, it would take him hours to get out of bed. And when he finally did, he would take Vivarin and cocaine to stay upright. He was profoundly depressed for a few good reasons. His good friend, Freddie Prince, that's Freddie Prince uh, Jr.'s dad, had died from suicide at 22. His sister had just died of disease at 20. And he also realized that he was manic depressive. So he retired at this point in his career, at a high point in his career. He, because in the middle of shows, he would just start breaking down and crying. He had to quit. He went to an institution. And then when he came back, he was really open about finding you know, help about mental health in the 70s. He was talking about taking lithium, embracing his own vulnerability. And I just thought it was a really interesting point of connection about what does a breakdown look like? Does it look like how we imagine it being in more histrionic movies? Or can it be kind of buried in something still quiet, somebody who seems like they have it together, but just isn't? And also, as a side note, one of the sounds of his impending breakdown for a movie that's all about a woman fixated on her family was he was fixated on inventing a holiday called Family Day, where he imagined great families parading down the streets. He was really into this. He designed a flag that had like rainbows and stars on it. He tried to get the president on the phone. And when he tried to get the president on the phone to talk about Family Day, that was one of his clues for his wife. She was like, something is very, very wrong here. So cheers to Tony Orlando. I I would say an early pioneer in talking about mental health. I can't believe you did it, Amy. I can't believe you found a song and tied it into this film. But I'm going to tell you something else. Uh, I think that inadvertently you also connected something here too because you erased the existence of Don. Tony Orlando and Don, Amy. It's the two (gasps) of them. And you know what? This film is about women's erasure. We don't think about them. We don't think about them. We talk about the man. We talk about what's going on. And you just did it to Dawn because that album. You are so right. (laughs) There it is. There it is. Thank you for calling me on that. You're right. I think of Tony Orlando and I forget about Dawn. Oh my God. Now look, Amy, I don't want to call you out and not call myself out because when I originally wanted to call you out, I did type in Tony Orlando and Dawn and I found out that Dawn is not... (laughs) one person. Don isn't even a person. Don is two people. It's uh, Thelma Hopkins, who you might know as an amazing actress. I I grew up with her on uh, shows like Give Me a Break or Family Matters. And the other Don was Joyce Vincent. They performed together. Uh, So it was, Don was an amalgam. (laughs) I mean, I want to get into all of this. I feel (laughs) like, uh, I feel like I can't right now. I don't feel like this is the right a moment to do it. But uh, wow. Uh, and just so you know, Joyce Vincent uh, almost replaced Mary Wilson in the Supremes. Uh, but, you know, um, she did not do that. She did not do that. Um, Wait, but now I want to know if Dawn is even meant to be a name or if Dawn is like the rising of the sun, like I mean, calling who? them the Supremes. Jean Dielman and the Erasure of Women is still a very much a present day thing, and we all have to be looking out for it. I mean, I'm going to say that you erased two women, uh, and, wow. uh, but I also erased one woman. So <laughs> we are already off to uh, a lot of mistakes. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. 
One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, Amy, I'm so excited to talk about this movie, and I'm glad that we're taking off the table the discussion of does it deserve to be number one? Because I think, honestly, that's all opinions, you know, and I think that times can change and tides can change, but I'm really happy it is number one because it got people watching this movie, and I think it got people talking about this movie. Now, I did not want to watch a three-hour and 21-minute film with little to no dialogue uh, no music. I, I I felt like this was going to be something that I would absolutely dread. And what I found was watching it, it completely captivated me. Like, yes, did it make me drowsy? Absolutely. Was I bored at certain parts? Sure. But it was like being forced to stare at a painting. And I felt like that's what this movie was. It was just watching something and getting so invested in all these small details, whether it's her hands or the way that she moved in a room that I started creating so much more about this movie and got so invested that at points I'm laughing, I'm I'm, I'm feeling emotional, I'm worried, I'm panicked when she's peeling potatoes. I'm wondering what's wrong. Like I feel like I'm one of those ghosts in the Christmas Carol where I can just watch but not interact with the person there. And we're so in that space. I I really enjoyed Jean Dielman. I mean, it was a trek. It was a journey. But I also feel like, wow, I'm so happy that you forced me to take it. I fully agree because I'll just admit this up front. I'd actually never seen Jean Dillman in full. I'd seen clips of it in film classes. I was like, I get the gist. You know, you watch somebody wash the dishes for five minutes and you're like, okay, I understand what this film is. Absolutely not. I hadn't, I really had sold myself short on the experience of the film. And I will say watching it here in my house with my boyfriend in one long unbroken take, it felt interactive. Like we're yelling Mm. at the screen, like, there's still soap on that plate. There's still soap on my plate. Jean, are you okay? Are you okay? Like absolutely panicking. And I realized, I don't know if it's that this film trained other films or that other films trained me to watch Jean in this way, but studying her that closely, the film I kept thinking about, and I'm embarrassed even saying it out loud, was Paranormal Activity. Was the type of film where a camera is watching a room with such stillness that you, the audience, just start feeling dread and emotion. You're paying attention to everything so closely 
that the slightest disruption in the plan feels like an attack, feels like a horror film, feels like, oh my God, something is very, very, very wrong. Her it's hair almost is out like, of place. What, what's going on? What's happening here? I feel like a, a, a lover in a relationship and I don't know why my partner's not talking to me anymore. Like I, I really, I had all those feelings. And you know, I will say that I felt like it was similar to that movie Rope. Alfred Hitchcock's rope. Did oh, you ever yeah. see that? Where the camera kind of just pans back and forth. It's almost set up like a play. And the camera's going from left to right the entire film. And you know that there's a bomb in the room. You know, and that was the tension, but there's no there's no bomb. There's no knife. There's no gun. Well, <laughs> we'll get into it. But you know what I'm saying? It like, but it has that level of stillness where every Every choice is so specific. You couldn't just, it's like when people say, well, my kid could do that, or that's just splatter on a canvas. It's like, it devalues the art, but I think that the movie is incredibly artful, incredibly well done. It's not sloppy. It's it's incredibly specific. Yeah, it's exacting. And it's a performance, you know, because Delphine Seyrig is a person who said very openly, I've never made coffee in my life. I've never breaded veal. I'm a fancy actress. Are you kidding me? I don't know how to do any of this stuff. So she is learning from Chantal, from Chant the women in Chantal's family, how to bread, the order of breading, going over things so neatly. This is how it's done. Are you sure this is how it's done? And it's new to her. So it is an acting performance to do something like peel potatoes with concentration, then peel them as though your mind is fading away. And then, like, concentrate. Oh, you dig out the eye like this. It, it, for an actress who said she'd never made a cup of coffee in her life, this is almost a, a Tom Cruisean level of, of physical performance. And I read about some of the special features on the Criterion disc of this, where Chantal is speaking to her. And it's so exacting. It is like you will spend a minute looking out that window. Then you will do this with your hands for 25 seconds. And then you will get up and you will look over here and you'll open that door. This was something that she saw. You know, she originally created this film with a bunch of extraneous subplots. And she just chiseled away at its barest form, which is a still life of this housewife. Yeah, I watched that whole documentary immediately after I finished Jean Dielman. I was really like jeaning it up. And it's fascinating because you can feel both sides of their arguments. Like Delphine is like, I feel really creatively blocked because you're writing everything out. How I move, how I light the burner. She lights the burner five times. So I was counting. I was making a party game out of it. That she felt like a pawn, that there wasn't room for her to bring her own creativity to it. And Chantal was like, well, yeah, yeah. This woman doesn't have a lot of creativity. And they're having these really deep conversations about how do you look out as though you're thinking, but not thinking hard, but not looking stupid, but not looking intelligent. And it's just so complicated and fascinating. It's a really good study of like a director working with an actress. And it's a really good example of showing how much Delphine herself is acting because she is not a woman who doesn't tell people exactly what she's thinking. She is a woman who's very outspoken in how she feels. She's very bold. She herself at this time was known as like a really daring major feminist. She had just signed this thing a couple years before called the Manifesto of the 343. What that is in 1971 was that in France, it was illegal to have an abortion. And the Manifesto of the 343 was written by Simone de Beauvoir. And the women who signed it were women who said, I've had an abortion. I had it illegally. Come at me, bro, if you dare. I know it was a crime and I don't 
regret it. And Delphine signed it. And that list really had an impact that uh, three years later, France did finally like open the door to abortions up to 10 weeks. And then they had opened it a little bit further. And anyway, all of that also feels like very relevant to be talking about right now. But she was a person who I think was known as being like a bold, bold movie star. So putting her in this role at the time, people would have just seen it as a major performance, a really bravura performance. By the way, one the interesting way that Delphine and Chantal even start working together has to do with the fact that they are both like women with big personalities and big ideas. They met at a film festival. Uh, Chantal was there with her first film. Delphine was there because she was presenting a Jane Fonda uh, piece. She wanted to like, you know, she was uh, allies with Jane Fonda and Jane Fonda's whole mission. And uh, Delphine goes up to Chantal and says, you have the eight o'clock slot. I have the 10 o'clock slot. The 10 o'clock slot isn't as good. Will you switch with me? Can I have your slot? And Chantel's like, what? Why would I take the worst slot? That's ridiculous. But okay, I will on one condition. You have to stay and you have to watch my movie after your thing. And Delphine is like, fine. So they make that deal. Delphine watches Chantel's first movie. And that's how they connect artistically. So Chantel writes this movie with her in mind. There's something really magnetic about it. And I think that the first 25 minutes are probably the hardest to get through. But in many respects, it's the setup to the punchline. And not that there is a joke, but like the idea that you need these 25 minutes because the beginning of her day, the way that her first day begins, the order, the mastery of her domain, that unravels and without watching that so intently you don't or you can't really enjoy the second half of the film in many respects like i thought should i fast forward can i watch it a little bit quicker and no i think part of this movie is to make you feel stuck to make you feel trapped to make you feel bored yeah to make you feel bored i think exactly bored and yet busy engaged mentally at the same time, because what I keep thinking about in the in the day since I've watched this film is the mirror that this film held up in how we watch movies in general. You know, like you're studying a frame so closely that every little piece of information pops out. Like we see her take an older man to the back room. We cut to the darkness. We see him walk out and pay her. We know that this is a sexual transaction for money. And that's when we finally like really see her wedding ring more clearly. And you add the wedding ring to the bit of information. Oh, is she married? Okay. What's going on? And then she's in the shower. She's bathing herself in the tub. And then you like cut to the door and you're like, oh, there's two bath jackets here. So we know she doesn't live alone, but how does that fit in with the gentleman? And will it, does the person she live with? No. And the patient doling out of information kind of packs around this woman and answers questions that you're having in your head. And they all feel like the biggest deal as you're studying her with such intensity. So in a way, as a viewer, you're incredibly active because you are forced to be. There isn't this exposition. You have to see tone. You have to see movement. And that's what, to me, makes the second half so engaging. When her hair is out of place on day two, you know, I'm going through all these scenarios. What happened? Was she assaulted? Was she attacked? And and you start to feel in different ways. And then all of a sudden you are... You're finding yourself putting so much of your own, not judgment, but your own life into her life. And I was watching this thinking, first of all, as someone who's incredibly organized and likes 
my systems. I found this movie incredibly therapeutic. This is like ASMR for me. I was like, yes, peel those potatoes. Yes, bread <laughs> those cutlets. Like I, I, there was something so comforting in watching someone do these tasks. I imagine this actually could be a huge hit on Twitch in the ASMR world. But that connection, like there was a safety in there too. There was a, something about her and a reflection on how much time we all spend quietly doing things like yes now we have podcasts and phones and we can text but if you if you take away the phone we're not really having a verbal conversation you know we're not really seeing people we can kind of live in our own bubble and to see somebody in those bubbles in many respects this movie are all the scenes that we don't see in film right these are the transitional scenes but yet we're living in those scenes. Like, you know, the camera is not going inside the bedroom. The camera's not going with them on their walk out. Yes, occasionally she'll go and get a cup of coffee and you can say, go get yarn and, and a button. But for the most part, we aren't watching anything that is action. We're watching errands, mundanity, you know, in a way. And, and our lives are full of that. I mean, no matter what, our lives are mundane. Just how we get up, how we get dressed, what we do, the order of our days, we follow these systems perfectly. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of this mix of voyeurism that feels like you're also staring at yourself. Because I feel mm. like in the in the since I have watched John Dealman, I am now so aware of all of my movements when I'm washing dishes. Absolutely. Like I'm feeling it. And it's interesting because, you know, I have my rituals, like when I'm at my house, like at night, I always like wash all of the dishes from my last like evening cups of tea and I put them in the drainer and I make sure that all my soda streams are filled up so I'll have cold water in the morning. And I, I always think of it in my head, you know, when I'm wiping the counter as I'm resetting the stage of my house for tomorrow's play. For when I wake up tomorrow and I enact the scene of my life, everything will be in place the way that I need it. And that in this movie felt like it gave those actions even more dramatic heft. And I have to say, like, one of my theories about why I think this movie is hitting harder now is that in a post-pandemic world, we all really lived, Jean. You know, like, this movie is taking place in the 70s. It kind of implies that, like, Sylvan, the son, never washes a dish, never cooks dinner, doesn't even know how cooking happens. It's just sort of put in front of him. But I feel like today... In the modern era, we've all kind of lived a version of this. It's like much more relatable. It's not just a story about like a woman taking care of a man. It's sort of a, a universal story about all of us taking care of ourselves. It feels like more relatable, this idea of being confined and having your routine. I don't know about you, but I became hyper aware of my daily repetition in the months where we didn't get to do anything but go outside. And like when I when my weekly grocery shopping trip was the most exciting thing in my life, and oh my God, are they going to have avocados? Oh, I can't wait. Will they have fresh flowers I can put in my house? And I have to think a film like this that maybe felt like estrangement to a chunk of the audience when it came out, like, why are we watching this? What is this here? Why are, what are what are we doing? I don't understand. Is this woman is crazy? Is now personal. And yet at the same time, the more the movie goes on, the more you're like, Wait, this woman is crazy because Jeanne Dielman, I don't consider her to be an every woman. I consider her to be like a really specific character, a person who, what, I, I mean, undiagnosed OCD. Can I say that? 
Or is even the act of wanting to diagnose her and give her a psychological motivation not even the point? Well, I would say that it's not OCD. I think it's handling of grief. I think it's control in a world where we don't have control. I think that that's what we just learned in these last three years. We don't have control of anything. And as a society, we hadn't been through that. Like we could have lack of control in our personal life, but the world made a decision. I think anytime you see these giant tragedies, you know, whether it's a school shooting, whether it's 9-11, you you have these moments of like, oh my God, this can happen. A, a plane can crash. A, you know, like these things that shake us to our core. And I feel like what we're seeing here is a woman at a time where she is without her husband, who seemingly died suddenly, even though that relationship may not have been the best. We don't know. Again, we're making our own judgments about that. And she's trying to keep it together. And the only way she can keep it together is by making her world free from any outside interference. It's not about replacing the buttons on the jacket. Like she wants that exact button. There is no movement. There is nothing to allow her anything of flexibility because any bit of new information, anything that is different sets her off. And and that's why you know, as, as we talk about this, I will talk about the end because I think the end does illuminate the rest of the film. This idea, you know, of what happened, what started everything wrong. And I thought for a while it was an assault. I thought that this, you know, this man had done something. The second John that we see in the film, like had hurt her in a way. And she was undone by that and holding that in. And And what you realize, and I think which is more shocking is it was the first time she had an orgasm and that was the ultimate loss of control, right? And and then all of a sudden, that loss of control within her own body breaks her, like it completely breaks her. And the ending to me makes so much more sense because I was watching that ending and I don't know if this is of the time and maybe you can speak to this. Like, I know it's supposed to be like bad sex or not passionate sex, but it it almost is comical in the non-movement of it. I don't know if they could have done anything more explicit. So you have to kind of just be like, that is what it was or <laughs> that is what they could film. What do you think about that? Right, because it's so much up to interpretation it feels actually let's listen to that very soft and hushed stabbing When I watched it, I thought, is he asleep on her? Is she trapped? Is she uncomfortable? What's going on? I wasn't even sure she had an orgasm. 
Right. You know, like, because she's she hides her face under the blanket, but then she also just seems resentful when she's looking at him in the mirror that he lies back down when she needs him to get up and leave so that she doesn't boil the potatoes over much again. I thought oh, she was like see, I read that taking differently. too much time. Oh, I read that very differently. See, I read that he was pleased with giving her an orgasm. And like in giving her an orgasm, he kind of is showing himself like, yes, I am a, like, he has the ultimate power. He did this to her. He made her lose control. And she's getting back at him in that moment. Like, how dare you? How dare you do this to me and take pleasure in it? Even though that's what she's offering these men. Like she's offering them, a ch- but because she was able to keep everything in a box and, and organized and, and in order, and she had control in that. She was angry with him for doing that to her. And I feel like the if that man did get up and leave like the other man, she would have been, I think, going about her same life. And I think that eventually she would have a break. But I think that, that the way he looks, the way he's cocky, the way he lays back, the smile on his face, it was like, I just made you do that. And again, not... not a crazy thing, not even aggressive thing, but to her, I read that as being the most aggressive thing that you could do to her. I mean, that is the reading that Chantal Ackerman agrees with. Like Chantal Ackerman is one who's like very clearly like, oh no, she had an orgasm after the second guy, which I don't, you wouldn't know because you're not allowed to go into the bedroom. You're not allowed, but that's what she says happens. And I gotta say, the funny thing that I think uh, about the second guy is like for most of these men, uh, Chantal Ackerman cast like film people she knew. The very first guy, uh, Henri Stork, was like a famous director. The second guy, the orgasm guy, you know, the kind of twerpy, short, brown-haired guy. Yeah. Um, his name is uh, Jacques Doniel Valcross, and he co-founded Cahiers de Cinema, and he launched the director's fortnight section at Cannes, which is the section that Jean Dielman would then premiere in. So it's sort of like she cast him in her mind as like, the guy who shakes up your life and gives you pleasure you never did, which in a way he kind of did for Chantel. He put her in this festival. He made her a star. He put a film in the festival that's about him pleasing a woman, I guess. Uh, I think all of that's very, very funny and very coincidental. And maybe that's a hot tip if you want your artsy film to get into a festival. Cast when the guy's in the festival as like the greatest lover of all time who might ruin your life. Um, so side note, I thought that was very funny. I've been doing that for years with Paul Newman. <laughs> But I got to say, with all of that in mind, I don't love the orgasm thing. And I don't love the murder thing. I'm, I'll just say that right now. I don't love that she murders a guy at the mm. end. To me, it feels like a betrayal of what I was loving about this movie up until then. That it was a movie that said a woman's life has merit. The things that matter to her shouldn't matter. And you don't need to have drama for her life to matter. And then suddenly when it decides to have like extraordinary drama at the end, it feels like it had to justify itself. And I do wish the movie hadn't felt this need to justify itself because it changes everything. Like you go from watching a woman living her ordinary life, empathizing with her in her ordinary life, caring about her ordinary life, to then it reframes everything as, no, this is a woman building up to murdering somebody. And it feels like a concession that that's not enough. And I want it to be. Well, I... I hear what you're saying, and I disagree with you because I think it speaks to the overall film, what's going on there. It's about 
this woman who has never lost control, losing control, and how she reacts. And and we see her for a day react with this knowledge of not having control over her body and how much it literally sets her whole world off. And you can see something almost suicidal on that. By stabbing this man, she at least puts order back into her life. She knows she's going to be arrested. She doesn't, you know, there's a part of me that's like, does this movie continue? What goes on? But because the movie ends at the stabbing, I feel like it's not sensationalizing that. I think what it's doing is showing you two things. One, there's a the mundanity of our lives. Everybody has it, no matter what. And then I think it's also showing you all the work that goes on in the house, especially at that time by women that no one respects or cares for, right? This idea of it does take 10 minutes to peel the potatoes. It does take this long to go get that button on your jacket when you think, oh my gosh, I just got here, right? Parents are working hard all the time and you don't get to see it. So I think there is something about the, you know, who is that man in this situation, who is that woman behind the curtain making all things run? I hear what your concern is. That isn't it just enough. But I do think because it's a movie, it does need to have an end. There needs to be a change. And I do think that, that that's what makes this movie a true film and not just an art piece. And while it is, I think, something that you could see in a museum, and I feel like this is something that you would walk to different rooms and come back and like, oh, she's still peeling potatoes. Like, you know, I think this feels like it should be in a museum. But that's what I really liked about it. I felt like the ending gave the whole movie meaning. Justin and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag & Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Well, first, I will say that Chantal Ackerman disagrees with you. She says, this movie doesn't end with a murder. There are seven very strong minutes after that. Oh, okay, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. In which case... John sits at the table and stares with blood on her hands. Um, Don't you think that that was so similar to the end of Michael Clayton? Uh, I know oh I'm pulling gosh, that out I of my... I barely remember Michael Clayton. So at the end of Michael Clayton, George Clooney, you know, does his does his deed. I won't spoil it. Uh, also because I don't remember it exactly. Uh, and then gets into the back of a taxi cab. And the camera just stays on him for a very long time. And it's... You're just watching his face as he thinks about what just happened there. And I think that there is, you can see that this movie inspired so many filmmakers. There are so many things that are cribbed from this film. But I that ending was, 
I thought wonderful because you're watching her and it's, it's not panic. It's calm. She's calm again. She's going through. She knows what the next step is. I thought, are we going to start to see her go breaking bad here and get him in the tub and use acid and, you know, dump his body in the middle of the night out on the street? I, I didn't know what we were going to see. And the fact that you see her being, it was relief. That was something I thought was so powerful. I mean, I will say this. We know Jean can scrub a tub. So oh, we know that if she get cuts him apart tub. in the tub, she could probably get rid of all the blood. She's not going to be one of those people who's going to leave forensic evidence. And we also know that her John's pay Jean in cash. And so that man's wife probably doesn't know he's there if that man is married. No one might right. know that that man is there. Her, hus- her, her son doesn't know that these men come by. I can imagine... Her getting away with this murder, to be honest. We know that she's not going to crack and tell people about it. I think she's going to keep it on lockdown. But if she's in prison, she will be really happy working in the kitchen and washing dishes. It'll give her something to do. Because I feel like her personality type that we see in her is she's a person who's most content moving and not thinking, not reading. Like it became a joke to me watching this film how anti-literacy she is. You know, like at the dinner table, the only thing she really says to her son is no reading. Yes, it's not in English, but I feel like you you hear her tone. And then you know, it almost becomes a game when she's sitting at the table. The newspaper is right there, but she'll pick it up, page through it very quickly. Like she's kind of barely reading, maybe looking at a headline put it down, and then she'll fidget with all of everything else. She's like, let me adjust the salt. Let me fold these napkins. And every night it's like, she almost reads a paper. And then I don't want to, don't want to. I could fill my mind with literature, but I, I don't. I refuse. Well, because it's, it is cutting off attachment to anything. You know, even her attachment to her son is, is so cold. Like at first I was thinking, oh, the son is cold to her. But then I'm like, oh no, she's cold to him. She can't allow herself anything. The music is even distracting her to write her letter back because the letter is, you know, she has to answer for herself. She has to expose herself. She has to like show a bit of herself. Her friend meets her in the street and is like, oh, let's let's go get a coffee. She's like, I'm too busy. And you know she's not. She's definitely not busy. She's got nothing to do. But she can't allow anything, like literally a news story about anything good, bad, indifferent to upset her. Everything has to be done. We had dinner late. We're going to still go on that walk. Everything is, that's why her body betraying her to me is, is amazing. I guess she can betray herself by cooking the potatoes. Like when you see that, that fear, that hesitation, when she messes up the potatoes and runs around, people go, oh, this movie has no jokes. I think that was one of the funniest sequences in the film. You know, she's carrying these potatoes from room to room. She doesn't know what, what's going on you know there is yeah i actually pulled that audio clip because i feel like you get so much of her tension and confusion just in hearing the rhythm of her footsteps as she's walking in and out of rooms with this thing of potatoes not knowing what to do
But, you know, a few things popped out at me uh, from what you just said that I can't wait to talk about, which is Sylvan. First, I had the same emotional arc about him that you did. And I have to confess something. I'm really bad at predicting people's ages. When Sylvan oh, walked in- Oh, he looks in, too old. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He looked like, I thought he was her husband because she looks younger than that character yes. is to me. I like, 100% agree. That made it very confusing for me as well. I was like, I was reading into it too much. I was like, what? what's going on here? Yeah, it was- yeah. Yeah. I thought he was her husband. Then I thought he was her brother. It took me a minute to realize he was her son. I mean, the actor himself, Jean de Court, is like 25 when he plays this part. And be- but she's treating him like he might be in high school, but maybe he's a college student. It's it's really unclear. But I had that same yeah. mark. Like, is he oh, in high school? I can't tell. I mean, she's pouring him beer, but it is Europe. Right. <sighs> I'm going to guess college, but the way she's treating him is so childish. And I went on this whole journey from like, boy, he's a jerk. He's so selfish. He's just sitting in there. She's like giving him all these potatoes and doesn't care. And he's reading at the table to like, let the kid read, man. Lady, you're not talking to him. You don't have a conversation with him. He's starved for conversation, for interaction, for connection. At night, he just wants to talk to you and you don't want to talk to him at all. And, you know, she's training him to be this lazy jerk. Like, when that guy gets married, his wife is going to be so unhappy because she's training him to just like expect to be doted upon and imagine that, you know, boots get magically shined in the morning and coffee magically appears. She's doing him like this really dangerous emotional disservice. And when she goes to the cobbler with his shoes, you know, she kind of has that line, oh, what would I do without him? And it's like, lady, you're cobbling you're hobbling this young man to be a useless person just so you have something to do what would you do without him you can't imagine it he's being raised not to thrive and it felt kind of like emotional abuse at some point well you know it's interesting because when you really hear from him it's primarily about sex yeah right you know and there's something really interesting i don't know if it's an edible complex i don't think there is one there, but I think he is trying, you know, maybe there's a part of him that is aware that something is going on. How is his mother making this money? What is she doing? Or maybe there's a part of him that has been treated like this. We don't know how long his father has been dead for, you know, but we assume it. I think it's it feels fairly like recent. Years. Yeah, right in that yeah. zone. You know, no one has ever kind of shown him anything. He doesn't know how to interact with women. He doesn't know how to interact with anyone because he's, you're saying he's mirroring what's going on here. I don't think he's mirroring bad behavior. I just think it's like being brought up by a robot. You know, there's no emotion there. You know, she gets up multiple times to tell him the dinner's almost ready, almost ready. The providing for him is more important than the connection with him. And, you know, he he becomes a, a piece of furniture that she does, or, you know, she requires him to stay sane but that's about it it's the it's the it's it's very sad relationship and and i also feel like his not hesitation about sex but his inability to really fully understand sex that's why i think he's a little bit younger yeah because to be like mommy what is sex is is a penis like a sword yeah and i think that there's something when you first watch it where you think oh well she's a sexual professional. Like, of course she knows about it. And then what you realize, and that as the movie kind of unravels, she is truly as unaware as he is, right? You know, she is equally unequipped to answer those questions. And, and I don't think that she really has 
had good sex. I don't think that by having an orgasm, she had good sex. I think she had an orgasm. It feels to me that she's not hiding anything. She is just empty. You know, she's not being coy. She has nothing to share or give. And nor can she connect with him in, a, in any other way because that would also require emotion. Yeah. Like, I actually had an issue with the HBO Max summary of this movie because oh, it's, it's one sentence was, a lonely widow turns to prostitution to make ends meet. And I was like, well, she doesn't turn. She's already doing it. And also, I'm kind of stuck on the idea of lonely, which is a word that people use a lot for Jean. But I was like, lonely to me implies that she is aware of a lack, that she wishes she had connection, that she wishes she had more conversation and love in her life. She feels like a woman who shut off a bunch of switches and then forgot that she did and didn't even know that like love or emotion or joy existed. And it feels like she did this, you know, during the war, maybe. I'm saying that only because Chantal herself said that like when she was growing up, her mom too would also put more potatoes on her plate than she did on herself because her mom had been in Auschwitz. And I was really worried that like her daughter was growing up hungry or starved. She'd always tell Chantel that she looked anorexic because she had been so food deprived when she was young that she wanted to make sure her daughter ate enough and that her mother lived with this resentment because the war kind of broke her and she felt like she never really rebounded. She never had a proper career. And it made me wonder, like, is any of that backstory also Jean? Like, is Jean as a character what was her war experience? Was she in a camp? I don't know. She just sort of says that it was a weird time and everything was broken. Am I clinging to this idea that I'm like, was she in a camp because I need psychological motivation to film because it's just what I'm used to as like an audience member? I don't know. Like we know that they're immigrants, right? Because there's that little line about like, you're in a Flemish school and now your accent is getting made fun of and you chose it, which makes me think that they're not from around there. But I'm ignorant enough of this time and place that I can't hear anything in her accent that would let me know this information. And like the lack of meaning here becomes so interesting because then what we fill it in with says something about us, right? Like like how you were saying that this is like an active movie experience. You just said a couple minutes ago when she and Sylvain go out at night that they're going on a walk. I didn't think that. Weirdly, what put in my head was like, I think they're going to the movies. Maybe they go to the movies oh, wow. every night because he was like, it's Tuesday. Let's go to the movies. And then I only realized the next day, Amy, you probably just assume they go to the movies because you go to the movies pretty much every night. And you're like, well, that's right. what people do. You go on walks with your dog. So you inserted going on a walk. I like got really into this and I went on like the Criterion Collection forums. There's a bunch of people with their own theories. Somebody's like, I think they went out for a joyless drink. I think they're going to therapy. I think they're watching TV through a store window. And it's just this fill in the blank. Like, what do you think is worth doing with your time? Yeah, well, I, I thought they were going to church. Like, in my mind, I was like, oh, they're oh, going to really? some sort of a prayer service or something. Yeah, because I think I I associated the order with that type of lifestyle. Like, now we go to church. That's like, do we have to go? Yes, we have to go. You know, and I think that this movie allows you it gives you one piece of information or it gives you a lot of little pieces of information, but it's like a mystery. At the end, you can go back and understand more and more. Like what is, it constantly changes, it evolves. And that's why I think, I heard this as an exercise as an art student. Like you should, 
stare at a painting for 90 minutes. Like if you really want to understand a painting, stare at it for 90 minutes and you'll find yourself wanting to get up, move around, leave. But that exercise is actually incredibly helpful because it allows you to start finding more. And we live in a, such a time of short attention. I mean, that's why I'm curious how many of our listeners will actually even watch this movie because I also believe that this is kind of the issue with Knives Out, the sequel, The Glass Onion. Like there was a little bit of a an uproar online about uh, The Glass Onion. Like I think that people wanted it to be one way, but I really enjoyed Glass Onion and I enjoyed it because it does require an attentive watch. Like you need to be, I think it actually would be better in the theater because you would be forced to not take out your phone. You know, you have to watch all these little details because, you know, no spoilers about that movie, but everything that we learn about that movie is laid out for you pretty cleanly. And it's brilliantly done. I caught a few of them the first time and now I can't wait to go back and rewatch. But I do think this idea of like intentionally and intently watching something is getting a little bit lost. We can catch up with stuff. I can watch a Gerard Butler movie and check emails and not miss much, right? And by the way, I love Gerard Butler movies. But uh, you know what I'm saying? But I think that we are trained a little bit right now not to- No shame on plane. No, oh, cannot (laughs) wait. Cannot wait. That is my Christmas gift. Come late. That's my avatar. Um, but I don't, you know, like, I mean, not to be like, I am, I am, I am exactly that. I'm a, a non, I'm a distracted viewer. I know I am. Not in everything, but in a lot of things. I mean, I love what you're saying about art because I feel like that is my goal too, actually, for the new year. Like, one of the last things we did right before New Year's is we went to go see the Joan Didion exhibit that's right here at the Hammer. Mm. And we like wandered around. And I decided I wanted to play the game that I like to play at museums, which is a lot like that, that you pick a painting and you look at it until you notice like three things you wouldn't have noticed if you were just looking at it the way you were normally. Right. Yeah. So you like really study it. And I love that because every painting that I think is just fine always opens up all of these avenues when you give it that attention. And like, for some reason, the Joan Didion exhibit here in the hammer was like packed with like, really weird hipster kids who all seem super high at thrilling, thrilling to be in a museum with those guys, like overalls and no shirts underneath them. And just like, Whoa. I love and that. one of those guys came up to me while we were staying at a painting. And I was like, isn't that shadow weird? Because the shadow here looks like the sun's coming from there, but here the shadow's coming from here. And he was like, dude, it's like layers and layers and layers, man, this painting is fucking thriving. And like starts screaming. And it was thrilling. And I was like, my new year's resolution is to go to more museums because that was just great. But like, I want to think that filmmakers that I would not have imagined were Jean Dielman fans. Now I'm like retroactively turning them all into Jean Dielman fans, like not just the paranormal activity movies, but you know, it reminded me of my favorite scene in Invisible Man, the Elizabeth Moss, Elizabeth Man. Yeah. You know, there's that scene where she's like making dinner and the Invisible Man is in the kitchen and she doesn't know it. And he starts like fucking with the burners and turning the gas on and trying to kill her. But you wouldn't notice it if you weren't just watching it so quietly, so stiffly. It's it's almost the same thing in my memory of this film. It's like a static camera angle of a kitchen and you just see the burner go up and you're like, oh, my God. And now I'm like, Leo L, got to be a John Dielman fan, thought about Googling it, decided I would just carry it with me in my imagination. And I think that this idea often is attributed to 
stoner stuff. Like, oh my gosh, let's go get high and watch this thing because then you can allow yourself to really see more of what's going on, right? Like that often is, you know, when I did mushrooms that I went to the Van Gogh Museum in, uh, you know, Amsterdam, I'm like, oh, I'm in the painting, I'm seeing it. Like, And I think that oftentimes we like, associate that deeper introspective look with like being stoned or high. But at the same time, I think we can achieve that just by slowing down. Like in this movie forces you to slow down. I wonder if part of why we associate with stoners is because, you know, like at the moment that Chantal makes this film, even though yes, there were walkouts at Cannes, it was also the kind of moment when these films were being made. You know, like she said that, I mean, she's a film school dropout. She goes to New York. Um, she's a cashier at a porno theater. She starts watching Andy Warhol movies because when she's 20 and in New York, Andy Warhol is making movies like this, where you sit still, you watch and you absorb. There's also a filmmaker named Snow. She's watching films by him too. And it's like this challenge of enjoying experimental films was something she was doing really actively. You know, she said that she didn't really understand that film was even art until she was 15. She grew up like a lot of us. She liked Disney movies. She liked musicals. She liked fun stuff. Then she saw her first art house movie at 15. And then she was like, oh, this is serious. So she started watching these like anti-narrative films as a mental challenge. And then she made one as a mental challenge. And then she made it. And she was like, well, I, I guess I did it so well at 25 that A, I worry I'll never make a movie this good again. And then some people would say she probably didn't. This was her masterpiece, even though a lot of her other films are so fun. And she was like, I guess I just have to make different kind of movies now. But then like the rediscovery of this kind of film, the kind of ascension of the sight and sound pole being like, this is important now too. I wonder if it is a reaction to us in the modern era where second screening is just a thing. Whereas right. it's hard for me to not second screen. Where, like, I made the choice that I was going to take my notes of Jean Dielman on, like, you know, I have one of those. Do you know what a, an Alpha Pet Neo is? Alpha Pet. Alpha Smart Neo. No. It's like an old school word processor that's just the keyboard and, like, a tiny, tiny oh, little yeah, screen. yeah. And it's battery operated. And when I really need to focus, that's what I break out. Because I'm like, you can't get anywhere near the internet. You just have to actually write on this thing. So I took all my notes on that so that I could just kind of absorb I and love I that. Like- I use a Remarkable, which is like a tablet that you can write on, but you really can't get anything else on it. It's just, because I, I love, I find myself much more engaged when I keep my notes for this or how did this get made? Or even when I'm like brainstorming like script ideas, I like to write out longhand. I feel like it engages my brain a lot more than typing. Um, and so that's how I, I kind of do it. I love that Remarkable. I know this movie was done way before Jean Dillman, but the style, the way it's shot, the cinematography of it, it really felt to me uh, like a Tokyo story. Like, you know, this, that, I, that idea that like uh, Ozu did that, that low shot, you know, that, that was locked and you lived in those camera angles. And I feel like the, the taking away of a million shots, close-ups, you know, and, inserts, all these things that just kept the camera static. Like that's something else that we haven't really done. And I, I, you know, in such a long time, and I think that's why I keep on thinking of it as a painting because it is a still life. It is, it reminded me of Rear Window, like Jimmy Stewart just looking 
looking at people living their lives. We do have a connection to that. We want that. I think that's why documentaries are so big. I think that's why podcast documentaries are so big. Like we want to just be a fly on the wall. I don't think it's voyeuristic. I think it's zoo-like. I don't like I don't think that like going to a zoo is like being voyeuristic. I think we just long to watch people in their habitats. I think voyeuristic feels to me always like slightly scandalous. You know, like there's something like there's like a like um a perversion going on there. Whereas I think we like this idea going back to 2001. I kind of feel the same way about 2001 as I felt about this movie. Like at the end, you know, if you want to believe that, you know, our lead character is in an alien zoo. I just want to see him interact in that alien zoo. They're trying to make him happy and, you know, content, but they're watching to see what does he do. And I think there is something that culturally is just a unique thing. Like I want to, what does a lion do if I could get this close? How, you know, that's why we want to go on safari. It's why we want to see these animals. There was this contest that Criterion did in 2009 where they did like a Jean Dielman cooking contest to let people make their own short films that were in homage to, to Jean Dielman. Like one yeah. of the ones I saw was like oh, wow. a woman uh, kind of robotically humping a man, but then making a meatloaf on his chest at the same time. One of the ones I loved was like the Zellner brothers. This is before the Zellner brothers even made like Kumiko, the treasure hunter, that movie that we talked about in our Fargo episode. That's yes. like kind of riffing on the story about the Japanese woman who died in a snowbank. Um, they did one that was like just this purple monster, this mask that they'd made that had like 15 eyeballs and like a weird visible tongue that kept poking out. And you're just standing there for like nine minutes watching him stand over a pot as it slowly boils. It was just kind of excruciating and kind of marvelous. And all of these people contributed for like a hundred dollar gift certificate with the grand prize of a PlayStation. And I have to say, even though this contest was like 13 years ago, 14 years ago, I found it so heartening to see that all of these young weirdos were like standing up for this film and what it could do. Even at the time, there's a stop motion one that was just like amazing. And I think it kind of speaks to the hook that this film puts on you once you like really, really watch it, once it really soaks into you. I mean, like Chantal, this quote, you know, she said, in most movies you have crashes or accidents or things out of the ordinary. So the viewer is distracted from his own life. This film is about his own life. And, you know, I'm realizing even as I'm talking about it, that part of why I'm stuck on this contest happening in 2009 is because I think of that period, 2008, 2009, as like the beginning of the end of focus, mental focus. Mm. Like, I feel like that's kind of when smartphones really started to take off, you know, like people wean themselves off their Blackberries. I think that's when I got on Twitter was like around then. Instagram was around then. And like, that's when I, my brain broke. (laughs) And so like, and so I want my brain back. And I feel like starting off the new year with this film is like almost a promise to myself. I want to ask you, as we wind down, a couple questions about how you interpreted things. Because now I'm realizing that this movie feels like a Rorschach test. Yeah. She wears her wedding ring. Why do you think she's wearing her wedding ring? Because in her mind, she's never not married. I mean, it like that's it. Her husband died. She's not moving on with her life. I mean, her, the reason why her picture with her husband is on her nightstand table in the room in which she has sex with these men is like, 
No, she is and will always be married to him, in my mind. See, I felt like she never really liked her husband. Wasn't that sad that he was dead, but she wore the ring just so nobody would bother her. So men would leave her alone. I feel like some of that is true, but she also is using that to fit in. You know, as we hear from that woman about the meat store and feeling, you know, nervous around other women, what to order, and she orders all that veal. I think that she is always going to fit in as a married woman, but in her mind, she's not looking for anything else. I, I see this with people that I know that are widowed and older. Like, no, my husband died. That's who I am. I'm a widow. And I've seen it the other way, where it's like, oh, I'm starting a new leaf. And there are people who can move forward and people who can't. Well, she says, I just don't want to get used to anybody else again. And that makes me think she just thinks that people are a nuisance. I I, I don't disagree with that. But I also feel like she would never admit that she made a mistake. That is her husband. And she could tell herself she doesn't want to get used to somebody, but that's it. Like she made her choice. It's over. And that part of her life is forever locked. Okay. Well, then how about this? She has those two scenes with the neighbor's baby. Okay. How do you think she treats the baby? Terribly. Okay, yeah. Because somebody, so I saw somebody describe that she torments the baby. And I was like, is she tormenting or is she just bad with kids? No, she, again, emotionally, I mean, when she starts shaking that, the way she holds the baby told me everything that I needed to know. That woman is uh, like, this providing no comfort for that baby. The way she, like, it was like, It was like me picking up goo. She had no ease with that baby. It was very odd. Um, I thought that, you know, the way that she put the baby down and just walked off into the other room and didn't seem to ever acknowledge it, you know? There was a part of me, now I'll ask you this question, what do you think she was doing when she was watching that baby? Like, what do you think the other woman was doing? I think the other woman was running out to the butcher shop. Okay, because I thought the other woman was seeing men. Really? I thought maybe there's a there's a world in which they both have this little thing. Agreed, it probably oh. is an errand, but there was a part of me like, oh, I wonder if like, because I was like, how did she get involved in this? She's so cut off from the outside world. Like, how did she find this? And I thought like, oh, maybe this is the only woman that she can con- kind of connect with that they both do this. And she's the one that brings her, her guys. I don't know. There was... Again, me trying to find some reasoning on how she got into this world. I like your theory better. Okay, last one. So the morning of day two, she goes to the post office. She writes a long-ass letter, and she spends a lot of money mailing something. I thought it was her sister, but then like later on, she's like, I need to write my sister and tell her that I don't know what to say about whether or not we should come to Canada. So who was she writing? I thought that was a bank. Was that a bank? I thought that was a post office. I thought that was a bank because like, he stamped like, bump, 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 bump. And I thought that's why she took the money out of the jar in the beginning. I thought she was mailing something very expensive. It felt to me like an old school bank that I grew up in. Like that was what the bank situation was like. You'd go over to a little teller desk, you'd fill out a form and you'd go over with your money and then go over. And I thought she was depositing money or getting money. It is a bank. I just typed it in. It is a it bank. It is a bank? Oh, that's yes. so weird. I just assumed it was a post office because there was a little horn outside and I thought that meant mail. Yes. Oh, so she's saving her money. Yes. That makes me feel a lot better. I was like, what is she spending it on? You know, when you're speaking about that area, what I thought was so interesting was at night, all those neon signs went on and there was a part of me 
not knowing this area of Brussels, thinking, oh, this is kind of like a bad part of town or more of like, in my mind, I was thinking like 42nd Street. Like, where are all these, why are the neon lights affecting their their house so much? I mean, the house really is blinking like a Christmas tree. You know, when she goes out on the street, you don't really see that, but the streets are pretty empty when she's out. But I did think there was something about this area that she lived in because that felt to me like not a great apartment. Not her space itself, but like, to be across from a neon sign wouldn't seem like prime real estate. Yeah. I mean, the neon seems so jarring. I've heard people say that it's like psychological neon that like Mm. stabs at her and reveals her vulnerabilities. But that might also be people reading into it as much as I'm reading into the neighborhood that it's set in. There you go. But that said, should we talk about the reviews? Because there's actually an interesting story about this. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So this movie does not get properly reviewed in America until 1983. That's when it has its like two week run at Film Forum. And, you know, as 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 fancy as Film Forum is kind of considered now, people have reported that there were people at Film Forum who just started like laughing through the movie and thinking it was like ridiculous and like a a, a goofy joke. Um, I found the first negative review and it led me down this also crazy rabbit hole. So the one negative review that I found on Rotten Tomatoes is from David Edelstein at the time he was writing for the Boston Phoenix. And he called it a three hour one joke movie. It's so tidy that you could study it in Cinema 101. It would be an easy term paper to write. The hard part is sitting through the movie. And in it, he gets into this story. He's like, the movie came to the public's attention when Village Voice critic Jay Hoberman attacked his colleagues on the front page for not schlepping out to see it. And critics, out of guilt of passing up all those uncommercial movies that Hoberman routinely writes about, took the worm. He said that the movie is a Rorschach blot for phonies. I don't mean to slight the complexities of female depression, but this movie is a study of a freak and in subjecting us to her rhythms and routines for more than three hours, it bullies us into thinking we are freaks too. Audiences that don't hoot at the movie, as many at the Film Forum in New York reportedly did, may experience a more insidious satisfaction, the self-congratulation that is born of enduring one's annual avant-garde telethon. And you know that there's nothing I love more than, like, critical gossip. So I was like, well, what is this Jay Hoberman review? And I found it. And it is true. His first paragraph was like a specific call-out. Andrew Saris isn't reviewing this film, and I doubt that Pauline Kael will either. The New York Times at least has to see the movie when hopes Vincent Canby takes the assignment, but it'll be most surprising if Time, Newsweek, or New York Magazine bother to send anybody. And Hoberman later said that he like called out people specifically with quote unquote strategic belligerence. That worked because the next week Andrew Saris reviewed then reviewed it as well, and he was like, "I was a little miffed to find myself listed on the member of the on the front page of the Voice as the member of a de facto conspiracy against a French film." And then he kind of likes it. Kind of doesn't like it. He says that she treats uh, the character of Jean Dielman with less empathy than Kubrick plays for Hal in 2001. That he respects it, but he doesn't really love it. But then at the end, he said, perhaps I wouldn't have been so sensitive about the supercilious comment if on that very week I had not been caught reviewing Tom Selleck in High Road to China, one of my more unrewarding mainstream white bread assignments, while you and Rich, talking to Hoberman, were freaking out on, quote, Art House Acid Downtown. And now, the interesting thing about that last line is because 
after Saris's review came out, tickets spiked even more for Jean Dielman. And Hoberman's theory was that calling it art house acid was what fi- finally made people go see the movie. It was like mocking it, made people be like, well, I'm going to take some acid and I'm going to go see Jean Dielman. And that is how the movie finally got its claws in the critical intelligentsia. Whoa, that is absolutely fascinating. And you know, I don't know if I agree with it being number one on the on the sight and sound list, only because it feels to me like it is someone trying to make a point, right? And and I think that this movie can be great and I could love it as much as I did, but I also don't believe that this is the number one movie, right? It, it feels like this is a movie that now has become a calling card. What people have accused this movie of, I agree with. But if it allowed it to come into its, you know, public consciousness, then that's a great service. Like we don't need to see another list with Citizen Kane, Vertigo, 2001, Wizard of Oz at the top because we've seen those movies. It allows us to neglect those lists in many ways. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that. But here it's like, wait, what? Yeah, get me mad. Get me angry. I don't think it is the best, you know, or even in the probably the top five, but I think it's fascinating and I'm so happy it was made. I agree. If that list is a spotlight, I'm glad it put it on this film. It'll be curious to see if it maintains it in 10 years. Who knows what it'll be like nattering around in the back of our consciousness, making us feel guilty about like the time we spend in waste and what will make us feel more seen in 10 years. But I feel like this movie popping up now really says something about the way a work of art can grow with the times that I don't feel like this movie is talking to the audiences of 1975. I feel like it's talking to me today. Absolutely. And I think that there are things that can definitely grow and change. And maybe these lists as this show started out as a show that talked about lists is less about what is the best and more about what should be seen. Like, let's talk about the top five movies that we should see. Like, we should agree on everyone should see it because we've all or most people have seen the quote unquote classics, like the true top tier classics. Most people have seen them. So let's make the challenge of these lists. What haven't we seen? What haven't we talked about? And I think that that's a tricky proposition because I think we're just like Jean Dielman. We want to see the regularity of Citizen Kane. We want to see the regularity of Vertigo. And then all of a sudden, when we see a Jean Dielman, we're like, oh, oh my gosh, uh, I'm dropping kitchen forks on the ground and my potatoes are overboiled. You know, it's like we are getting, we are exactly doing what Jean Dielman did. Our world is uh, panicking. No, 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 that's not right. That's not the best. That's not the best. How could it be? This is, uh, this is the, you know, uh, this is what these liberals are doing. They're fucking it up. They're making mad, you know, uh, the best movies are directed by men. And this is, this. you know, it's like, no, 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 no. Just watch these good movies. And I, and uh, I'm glad that I was forced to do it because God knows I would never have watched this any other way. Well, then speaking of lists and what they announce and what they leave out, there has been a filmmaker that we have never gotten to cover because he was not on the AFI list. And it is egregious and shocking because he is not only, I would say, one of our living treasures, he is also a guy who went to AFI. And come on, you're not going to like show some love to your own homies. And it is the David Lynch himself. Oh, David Lynch. Oh, David I Lynch. I can't believe we're finally doing I can't believe that we didn't do it. Um, wow. I All right. Know. I'm excited. And, you know, I was really torn. I was like, do we do Mulholland Drive or do we do Blue Velvet? Mulholland Drive is actually in the top 10 of the sight and sound list. 
but I really want to do Blue Velvet. That was the Lynch that made me fall in love with Lynch. I think that Lynch is magical. I, I want to do that one. Can we do I've that I've never one? seen it. Yeah, <gasps> never seen it. You've never seen so, Blue Velvet? Nope, never oh, seen it. Oh, you're going to have some fun. Oh, you're going right. to have well, some fun. Well, I cannot wait. Uh, all right, well, let's take a listen to the trailer. From the mind of David Lynch comes a modern-day masterpiece so startling, so provocative, so mysterious that it will open your eyes to a world you have never seen before. She All right, and if you are in the mood to keep Amy and I with you at all times, head on over to Podswag, where you can get yourself an amazing deck of unspooled playing cards with all of our favorite art from Kim Troxell. This is truly, uh, I know it's not a stocking stuffer anymore, but it's just something to have. I, I love these cards. I love the way they look. They're fantastic. And if you want to get an unspooled, a t-shirt, get over to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled. Um, but Amy, this is uh, this is it. And by the way, a very so a, fun. A, I want people to gamble with my face. Please gamble with my face. I love it. And and uh, and a new era here. We said goodbye to our engineer Devin in our last episode, and we are now saying hello to our new producer, Jessica Cisneros. And welcome to the show. You're here. What did you you watch John Dealman? What did you think? Don't be swayed by what we just said. Don't be swayed by any of what you just said. No, I thought it was very interesting. I thought it was, um, they committed, you know, I love saying like, commit to the bit. And they absolutely <laughs> commit to the bit. I like that. That is the best review that I think we've gotten. All right. We will see you next week for Blue Velvet. And until then, I'll be making some meatloaf. a new and exciting career challenge at dhl supply chain you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world we're recognized as a best place to work where people are valued supported and respected dhl supply chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles previous experience in logistics is welcome but not required all opportunities no boundaries dhl supply chain apply today at joindhl.com Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.